Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. Uh, I'm really excited about this episode. We're going to have, it's not as much of an interview as a conversation with an old friend of mine who is also a musician, as you can tell if you're watching the YouTube version, or and an author and somebody who I've always looked up to and respected as, as a creative artist for many, many, many years. Uh, Duncan Barlow is uh, my guest. Welcome to the podcast, Duncan. Thanks for having me. And it's always great. Like our conversations are always great. So yeah, I'm really you know we've known each other uh, you know off and on for uh, a very very long time since we were since we were young um, punk rockers. And I know you mostly as a musician in the early days. You were in one of the most popular bands of the Midwestern hardcore movement. At the time when I was growing up, uh, one of the biggest bands was Endpoint. You were the guitar player of Endpoint. You're also known as the guitar player for Guilt, a bunch of other projects. But one of the things that, you know, at the time I, we we talked about, we wanted to be writers back then, <laughs> and yeah. and we're able to make our dreams come true. But we both had struggles with that, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. But just for a little bit of an introduction. You are the author of a couple novels, um, the, um, A Dog Between, uh, The City Awake, uh, Supercell Anemia, um, which are all fantastic. Uh, the City Awake being the one that really touched me, um, that just really hit um, my weird um, uh, noir bone. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's one that I really loved. But can you just tell the folks about, like, um, some of your artistic output? Because you've got also a new record out. Um, so tell folks what they can find out there. Some would argue too much, uh, but I, I mean. think, uh, well, thank you. Um, I think, um, yeah, so I've got uh, some musical projects out there uh, from the past and the, the more recent record, I put it in quotes because it had a bit of a journey that took maybe five to six years to finally get it onto vinyl. Uh, and release it uh but it was you know it was a it was a lot of fun to do uh and it, it's the first thing i ever released just under my name uh right. before my sort of solo-y stuff was called the biddle and uh mm -hmm. this one i felt like well it's like 95 percent me so i should probably just give it my name <laughs> and, um, it, and it has a fantastic video that people can see with <clears throat> really beautiful animation what's the story on that Anna Fitzsimons, uh, a dear old friend of mine who I met on the Guilt Bardstown Ugly Box tour, um, did this animation for it, and it it's it is really beautiful. It's it's when I saw it, I I, I teared up a little bit because I was like, wow, this is this is so much better than the music, but. Uh, uh, you know, she's worked on a lot of things that people may have heard of um, in one way or another, uh, like 
I think Tom and his friends is one of them. It's like the talking cat and uh, Wolf Walkers, which was on Apple and got some uh, animated, it, it was nominated for an Oscar. And so she's really, really quite talented and uh, a brilliant human and was once a pro skateboarder or a snowboarder and just a really cool history. Uh, yeah, yeah. And um, the album has like a really, it's a really um, interesting vibe throughout the whole thing because it has it has a little bit of a storytelling thing going on where it seems like to me at least a lot of the theme is that you're kind of processing a breakup or something on the record and um, mm -hmm. and so it has a real transitional quality and and um, you know it's funny because it's not the type of music I generally put on for a spin most of the time, but because it's a friend who wrote it, I put it on and um, I was so impressed. It's, it's a great record. It's, 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 you can tell that you spent a lot of, a lot of time um, on this record. So it's, it's really cool. So how can people find that record? Cause then, we're, and then we'll get into the other stuff. Uh, yeah. So they can get it at, Mind Over Matter Records. Uh, there's a few of the color variants available. Um, you can listen to it streaming on, on any of the services. Yeah, and you can find out more about it if you want at my website, which is just DuncanBBarlow.com. Uh, mm. Which, and, and we'll, when we get later in this discussion, we'll talk more about your books and your creative writing. But the, the thing that I wanted to bring you on to talk about is something that's like super personal to both of us and, and an issue that was a big, you know, a big thing that we've always talked about over the years, which is the fact that we're, we both have learning disabilities and specifically we're both dyslexic, like had major struggles with this growing up. And the fact that, you know, we both have a couple books on, on at least my shelves back here um, was something that, you know, we talked about wanting to do as young people, but I know for me, I struggled for a long time feeling confident enough to try to write almost entirely because of my learning disabilities, feeling that I would never be able to write a clean enough draft or, or whatever. So what we want to do today is talk about what it, what it is to have a learning disability as a writer, as an artist and how we can creatively overcome those things. And uh, because I think both of us kind of, at least I know for me, I came up with skills and strategies to do that. So let, let's start with, how did you learn that you had a learning disability and at what age did that happen for you? I guess it should have been obvious to people. Uh, but, but the thing was in the seventies, dyslexia was not talked about in the way it might be today, especially while we're talking about not, you know, neurodiversity in classrooms and such. But um, I was at about sixth grade is when it, it seemed pretty obvious that that some kind of intervention needed to happen. Uh, I wasn't very, I couldn't read very well, um, almost at all. I could, I could barely spell or write. It was. I don't, you know, I, I think that's where you become a lot more 
conscious of grades. It was the first time that it was, it looked like I was going to fail. And I was getting these welts, these giant hives um, that, that sort of, we couldn't explain they were hot and itchy. And one time it happened to my lip and we had to go like ice it and we were scared it was gonna rip open because it was just hanging. Uh, the, the short end of the story is, is that I was tested. They took me to a, um, a child psychologist and he ended up testing me uh, and, and they found that I had dyslexia. And so uh, similarly to you, I was very fortunate that at the time my parents could afford to send me to this experimental school for dyslexia called DePaul, uh, where I was given the proper intervention education uh, to, to deal with it. Now, you grew up in Louisville. Was this school in Louisville? Did you have to? Yeah. And so was it a smaller school or, or um, in population? Because, you know, I, go ahead. Sorry. No, 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 no. Uh, yeah. I mean, in, in, in comparison to what most people go to, especially, I mean, public high school or grade schools are probably 25, 30 students in a class. Mine was 15 to or less. Yeah, I had a graduating class of six um, <laughs> at my high school. So my story with that was that um, I was always a good reader. Um, so it was interesting because reading was never an issue for me. And I grew up in a reading family. My father is an academic. He's a professor of political science. And when we were kids, our family would... Um, you know, read together as a family. Mm -hmm. um, my mom read to me so uh, like very, a lot when I was very young and I developed, I mean, I, by that time, by sixth grade, I was already an Isaac Asimov fan, which tells you that I took reading seriously and I liked it. But the problem was, is that when I got to school and it wasn't something I wasn't, that I wasn't interested in, it just, I, I couldn't see certain words, certain words disappeared just um i lost all interest and so what what cued my family into things was that it was the fact that even though i was a good reader even though i, I was failing miserably at school and they couldn't understand why that was happening so so yeah and, and i got tested but the thing was growing up in bloomington which is a college town we didn't have a specific school we had resource classes but my sister who was not even learning disabled when she was in high school she had a real rough time getting lost in the thousands and thousands of people and before my mom passed away she had told my father that she didn't care if she had to drive me an hour every day to indianapolis she was going to find me a school that was better and my situation was that after my mom passed my dad was kind of lost he was struggling with things and i ended up going to, to south for one year of high school and it was a disaster and then he felt totally awful because he said you know hey your mom said you know you're not going to the school so that's when they told me like what do you think of a boarding school where you can and i jumped on it just because i thought it was a different experience going somewhere else but we'll come back to my story on that but for you um in louisville 
Um, you know, in your situation, um, so going to a different school, did you have to travel outside of your neighborhood to do this? And how did that affect your social life? Because like for a kid, that can be a big thing going to a different school, right? Yeah. Um, it was, it was interesting because, yeah, I mean, first of all, I grew up being made fun of for being stupid, right? Like, right. Me too. Even my closest friends that I had in the neighborhood were just like, Barlow, you know, you're, you're all personality. And, uh, yeah, my, I think my, my parents to some degree had just said, I guess the kid is dim, you know, <laughs> like, uh, I, they were very surprised when the, when they, when I was, they saw my, uh, uh, intelligent, you know, uh, the IQ test at the child psychology, uh, psychologist's office. When I went to the school, it was weird leaving all the people I knew, but I found that the, the students were very sweet and kind. And I think many of them had struggled the way I struggled. Uh, and so I remember Ryan Doyle, uh, reached, you know, sat down with me and, and um, he was a different kind of guy altogether. He played guitar. He was really into the Beatles and, you know, just a really, just a really good guy. And we became like best friends. Uh, at the time, his father was president of KFC. His father started Qdoba or, or like <laughs> was involved in buying that or whatever. And uh, so we would go to his house and it was this beautiful, big old house on property. And uh, Were you already and, into punk rock at this point or like just yes. starting? Oh, yeah, wow. I, uh, I had discovered that uh, through a local music channel that, that the only thing they could play at the time because nobody really had videos was like weird new wave and punk bands or, you know, proto new wave or whatever so i grew up like uh on the clash uh the first adam and the ants record uh now some people might think that it's not important that punk is there but i would argue that one of the reasons that gave us confidence to move forward like we did is that punk rock taught us that it's okay to be weird and it's okay to be different and it was because you when you're growing up getting picked on for being stupid your whole life and you feel like you have a lot of self-hatred for yourself because you feel like those things are true and people are trying to make you feel those things when punk rock comes along and makes you feel like, Hey, no, I'm okay. You know, I don't give a shit what those jocks think. Cause I've got punk rock. Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think the difference between it was when I, I think in, when I first heard My War that by Black Flag, that I actually, that it, that was the moment, like I liked punk, but that was the moment, that first scream that I said, I, I just remember the moment. I was like, this is going to be my life. Um, and that, that the moment that that happened, I, I had 10 times more confidence in the world in this weird way. You know, I like shaved half my head. I went to school. I didn't care what anybody thought, you know. Right. Uh, yeah. 
No, for me, yeah. it was Nazi punks fuck off. Okay, um, okay. <laughs> you know, I, it was Dead Kennedys. It was hearing, like, it was the whole record that California Uber Alice was a political song that I understood because my dad taught me politics mm. and that they were smart and political and, and like, mm -hmm. you know, they were funny. Uh, you know, so I just, uh, it, it changed my worldview for that too. So, but you were going to, so you were going to this different school, you met different people, but, um, so that probably made a huge difference in how you were able to approach school just and learning in general, right? Well, at my school for dyslexia, uh, it caused more problems than helped uh, because it was a traditional school and it was very about, it was very regimented and there were a litany of rules. And I started pushing against them and they did not like that. So I spent a lot of time in the office uh, and, and I say uh, I did too. <laughs> and I remember one student, Mrs. Head, uh, put me aside and she's like, I have seen your test results from the standardized test. Your intelligence is terrifying and you choose to spend it like this. And I was like, terrifying. That's an interesting word. Um, but I think she was right. Look at what all you've accomplished, right? I know. Look at all the look at all the bad I've accomplished. But uh, <laughs> it did, though. Like I don't know because you know my trajectory was sort of like the early '80s. I was really into the the, the punk that I could get, and a lot of like Devo and you know B52s and things like that, and then. Once I got, I found a record store that actually had punk and hardcore. Then I started buying more. And then I met like Mike Bacalu at uh, a record store from, you know, he would later go on to King Horse. Uh, but he kind of took me under his wing in my eighth grade year. And then I'm just rolling around with college dudes that are just like looking out for me, teaching me how to be, you know, uh, an independent person. And I had more confidence than probably I should have, but it was it was nice moving from where I felt like a you know weird mutant right in Catholic school to yeah no I, Ian I'm ended gonna... up playing guitar in a band that was insanely popular in your hometown. You know, a lot of times I, I heard you recently do another interview where you were talking about how. And it was strange to me because, uh, you know, some of the other records are getting repressed and reprinted, but Endpoint is not. And one of the things that um, you said in there was, well, we were a live band, right? <laughs> and people don't like really understand the experience. And, and I was trying to explain to a young hardcore kid a couple of years ago, like why Endpoint was so important in the Midwest. And I basically said at one point, well, you just kind of had to be there. You kind of had to see the experience. And I mentioned mm -hmm. that because that's a long that's a long way from the from the kid who you know was struggling in school, and that kind of level of confidence comes with in part being able to figure out how to learn, and a lot of that I think is the confidence of you know of having success and doing those things and being like you know being comfortable in your own shoes, right? Mm -hmm. Which yeah. is something that. I know because I know you that we both struggled with even 
as we're having success is being comfortable in our own shoes, right? So Yeah, yeah. And it's odd because I was telling someone recently, I felt more confident and secure about things maybe my sophomore year than sometimes I do now as an adult. But I think that's more about, I think that is more about that I'm more cognizant of, I'm more sort of metacognitively aware of what I do, whereas then you're just like a little shark kind of moving through trying to survive, <laughs> right? Right, right, right. Well, um, so a little bit, I, I do want to talk a little bit about my journey on things because, and, and I'll tell you a really funny story about my, my original high school, Bloomington High School South, the one that my mother had told my father, like, he's not going there. I don't care what it takes. And I ended up going there for my freshman year of high school. And one of the things that's kind of important about my high school situation is that in middle school, it was, I was in sixth grade when they diagnosed me, right? When, and I had to go, the test I took, I had to go to Chicago. It was very strange. And so it was a very weird experience for me because like why am I'm going and I'm getting all these weird tests just about my brain and what's happening. And it was at a weird apartment uh, that we're overlooking Lake Michigan in Chicago. And so I had these like really weird memories of like, you know, we drove five hours and then now you got to take all these tests, uh, cognitive tests. It was, it was just bizarre as a sixth grade kid. And then through seventh and eighth grade, I had a great resource teacher in my middle school who really encouraged me. And those were huge periods of growth for me. That's when I started reading Stephen King and Clive Barker and like saying like, hey, this is what I want to do during those two years. It's also the time that I discovered punk rock, right? It, um, in between eighth grade and my freshman year of high school is when I discovered punk rock, went to my first shows, all that. I end up going to, to this high school and it's funny because I went back there and worked there as an adult in working with people with disability in 1999. Like that's way ahead of the story, but it's important because my resource teacher, my freshman year of high school was super lazy and she didn't want to do anything for me. And her name, her name, I'll call her out for specific. Well, I'm not going to call her out. Her name was Jan something. So, Jan was, when I went back and worked there as an adult, was my boss. She had become the head of special education at that high school. And when I had been, when I was going to school there was the first time I attempted to write a novel. Now, I'm sure it was absolute garbage and it had like psychics and serial killers and it was, but, you know, I tried, right? <laughs> you know, I was given my shot at it. And my father would watch me sit at the table and hand, I had a note notebooks where I was handwriting it. And he knew that I had like seven or eight notebooks that were filled with this novel in progress. And I had drawn a little logo for myself, for my name and all that stuff. And I was like, you know, pretty serious about it. At the time, my father was buying me books like The Stand and It, and I was reading all of them. I was reading them cover to cover and he knew this. And he went into an IEP meeting when all my grades started coming back as like I was failing everything. Like I was just, but he was sitting there watching me write this novel. So he went in and this woman, Jan, 
at this IEP meeting said, David has no drive. He should start thinking about vocational because he has zero drive. And my father blew a gasket. And he said, I'm sitting here watching him fill notebooks with this horror novel. And it's funny, when he told the story, he said, it may stink, but he's writing it. <laughs> and he's trying. He's giving it his all. And he has drive. And so he came back from that meeting. And I was at home. I think I was watching Star Trek or something, probably. And he just came up to me and he said, what do you think about boarding school? And at the time... Uh, I was already thinking in my mind I was a little more independent than I was because I was in punk rock and all that. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, let's do it. I, I want to go live somewhere else, <laughs> right? <laughs> the school that I ended up at was Brem Preparatory School, which is a school for kids with learning disabilities, which I'll talk about more later, in Carbondale, Illinois. But when I went back to work at South and as an adult and Jan was the head of special education, she went on and on and told everyone how she had great memories of me as a student and how, she, you know, and when I told my father that, he, uh, he literally, he blew gasket again. <laughs> and he said, well, I'll send her a bill for uh, your boarding school. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, but it was funny because I had to kind of face this woman who had totally given up on me, you know, tr you know, talking to me like, Oh, I just, I loved having you as a student. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. Right, lady. But for me, that was a lot because at that point, my freshman year of high school, I was still failing. So I, I know you'd kind of started at, at, at DePaul like a little bit earlier. And I ended up having to do basically my last, all my four years of high school in the last three to catch up to, to graduate on time. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if, my friends in the hardcore scene like kind of understood like why I wasn't in Bloomington all the time, you know, that I was going to this boarding school because I, and I will admit at the time, like I would just tell people I was going to boarding school. I don't know if I ever admitted to too many people like, you know, yeah, it's cause I couldn't, you know, because there was a part of me that thought like I couldn't learn at my regular high school and I felt a little like dumb about it, you know, like it made me feel now, that being said, you know, we had we had a pretty good sense of humor about it at the school and the school was fucking awesome and it was really cool to me. And I was trying not to swear in this podcast because I was going to send it to this. I'm going to send it to my school. So but it was awesome. It was a great experience. And we could, we'll talk more about that. But I want to talk about your experience, too, as far as high school, because you were writing music, you were, you were, you were prolific about writing music, but when did you start like taking reading and writing seriously? Was it when you were in school still, or was that later? Because I know we talked about it back in those days, a little bit at least. Sorry, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, like you, I got to a public high school, a very large one. Uh, I tried to go to but the school, my under, my, my undergrad, my, my uh, dys, dyslexia school had, had sort of, because of my rebelling, they had kind of suggested maybe he emotionally needs to stay another year. Like it's not his grades. And my parents were like, well, you can't hold him back because you don't think he's emotionally ready to, right. to leave. 
And they, I remember they were like, well, if you send him to this Catholic high school, uh, we'll sign off on it. And my parents said, well, what do you think about that? And I said, absolutely not. And I was like, yeah, I would always just say, I'll run away. Yeah, that was always my thing. I'll run away. Um, and so I wanted to go to Brown School, which is uh, kind of notable because, you know, like Brian and Britt from Slint went there. The guys from Crane went there. It was a really, it was a cool sort of art, arty public high school downtown Louisville. That principal met with my father and said, we, we don't, we're not prepared to handle a dyslexic, uh, which was like, made me really kind of instantly dislike that school. So I went to Atherton, which was like, the punk school, you know, that was like where the, the hoi polloi punks went. And um, they started me out in what they call, it was literally called the LD section, uh, which I was not, I was more advanced than that, mm-hmm. but they, they, it took them months to get me out of the classes and, and try to mainstream me. And those classes I'd already fallen so far behind in, so I was doomed. And so I was already, you know, my first few years in high school were, were low performing. Uh, by my senior year, I was making straight A's. I had figured out, because for me, uh, it wasn't necessarily reading and writing that was my issue, but it was learning systems, right? So if you drop me in a yeah. system, yes, absolutely. If, if I'm not at first, I'll kind of sink and then slowly catch up, right? Like, get it. I finally get it um, because I need to know it inside and out. And so my junior year is when I really started trying to write that was not like, I mean, all I cared about was music at the time, right? Like, that's all I cared about. Um, and I think punk rock has that effect because it, it's its own culture and you get into it and you get obsessed with it and you start collecting things, like stories from people, you, you know everything, uh, you get every magazine because there wasn't any internet, you traded tapes on through maximum rock and roll. I mean, it was a whole thing. And by junior year, I remember I, I read some Stephen King and liked it. Um, but some of the bigger books, I, I didn't really feel a lot of love for because every time I had that childhood anxiety of give me a big book. I mean, to this day, yeah. you put a big book in front of me. I'm like, you know, <laughs> I, I know I can read it, but I'm like, oh, no. A friend, this metal dude uh, who since passed, gave me a copy of Books of Blood in class because I'd asked him what he was reading. And... I couldn't put it down and I would read through classes and I think the, the teachers were just happy I was reading. Yeah. Reading, right? Um and I had because exactly it, the same experience. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's like in high school, I don't think I ever brought a book home, right? Like I just didn't do it. Uh and until my senior year. And then but like I was reading and then I told my dad about the book and uh, we didn't have much money, but he was like, well, 
Jesus, let's go to the bookstore. So I got every book that Clive Barker had published up to that point and just blew through them. Uh, and then I was like, I'm going to write a story. And, you know, my first story I tried to write was so bad, David. It was... Um, <laughs> I have that one was, too. <laughs> yeah, it was essentially like if you took the Cenobites and put them in Dante's Inferno, but done very badly. And, uh, you know, there was like a racer skin was one of the guys. <laughs> a racer skin. And uh, really bad. But um, My first started... one was about a, uh, a fraternity, um, like where like they all had to uh, protect a, the severed head of the guy who got, who got his head chopped off in their, you know, uh, trying to prove, I, I forget the term. He was trying to prove himself to the frat and they cut his head off and then they all had to keep his head so nobody would find out. That was my first mm. attempt at a horror story, which See, actually, that... it's not that bad. <laughs> no, no, more clever, far more clever than mine, you know. Uh, I was not one at the time for subtlety. Um, uh, but I, I, I started writing poetry because I, I had sort of been introduced to some poetry at that point. Then I fancied myself a bit of a poet and studied that for a while. Uh, it wasn't until I, I started an MFA in poetry that I, I realized I am not a poet. <laughs> yeah. Well, I also, I just want to say I have one that's equally dumb too, because I also have one from seventh grade called Night in the life of a common werewolf. And I still actually have that when I found it. And, um, and the, the, uh, it is hilariously bad. I like, I actually think there should be an anthology of authors, published authors, first horrible attempts at stories. Cause I would read the hell out of that. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but I mean, that, that goes to shows because you were already reading and you were like, Yours was what, sixth grade, seventh grade? Seventh grade was the common werewolf and the frat one was eighth grade. Those were my right. first two attempts, yeah. I was a junior in high school at this point, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, there, there's really like, I, I embarrassingly say there is no excuse for, but I think that- Yeah, the but on the same just... note, well, you were making good music with good bands. I was making terrible attempts at bands that never got anywhere, so. So you succeeded on, on the music, so. Um. I, I definitely can make a few chords go a long way. Uh, but Do you think that I, learning yeah. guitar helped you, uh, learning to play guitar? Because I know you're self-taught. Like, I know you don't read music or anything like that. So, so uh, do you think that learning guitar helped you learn systems for learning? Because... You know, I, I maybe there's something there about about that um, kind of order that there is to, to music at times. Uh, but for me, if there's any corollary that I can pull or, uh, between music and writing is that for me, both of them are so much about sound. Mm. So when, you know, when I'm editing and when I'm editing other people's work or, uh, I, I, I sound out everything and try to find what the balance is and, um, and how I can make 
contribute to that to make it sort of have the music. Right. Yeah. No, but, no. That, it, it's an important phase in the writing process is when you read it out loud to yourself a lot of times. Um, I got as I got older, I started reading more and and I was able to as you read more, of course, you start observing more and become a better writer. And, and I realized, you know, that, that I think sometimes I, I was busy rushing things and trying to fit things, really big things into small spaces. And uh, I was able to learn to let moments breathe and, mm-hmm. exa- you know, kind of get to the humanistic tradition of examining the human. But go ahead. Sorry. All right. Well, no, I got a really good piece of writing advice from uh, William Nolan, who wrote Logan's Run. Um, he uh, had said to me one time that when you read out loud, make sure you don't get dramatic about it because, you know, you can you can trick yourself into thinking that it's it's a little bit more exciting than it is because you're adding your 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 basic your acting ability to it. And he was saying that he that he always reads in kind of a monotone thing because like he's always afraid that he's going to make it sound better than than it than it actually is. And I, I always thought that was a great piece of advice because a lot of times um, I would Harlan Ellison it when I was reading like to myself. I'd get really verbose about it, and 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 uh, he was right. I was sometimes fooling myself on, on things, but I thought that was a good piece of advice, anyways. But well, that's interesting. I mean. I think it can be, I think it could also be a problem though, because if you're not observing the, the sort of different cadence and the different volume and speed of the line, you might, you might, you might miss something. I don't know. I think. Oh yeah. There's I know, a balance for that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I know when I do a, a reading, I try to give a performance to a certain degree, not so much that I'm, talking in a lot of funny voices but like there's nothing harder to me than sitting through a reading of somebody who it seems like they just hate their own work yeah absolutely and um there's nothing worse than a humorless reading too because (laughs) like if it's really dour really like it's just like oh it's very hard to get through i always tell people read the funny stuff because once you get your audience laughing, they, they're more engaged. Um, and, uh, but, uh, yeah, that's, I'll throw that little piece of advice out there for people doing readings. But, um, but yeah, so, so one thing that happened with me too, in the, um, in the educational situation was that, so that freshman year of high school, I just, I had no support, nothing, nobody helping me. And then all of a sudden I went from that to classrooms where, you know, we had five, six people in a class. So what I ended up going to was my boarding school was literally, and they're much bigger now. They're huge now. Um, but when they were just starting out and we had 50 students total from middle school through high school, right? We had classes of like five people, five kids at a time. And so you were getting all kinds of individual attention, you know, and your your teachers were able to watch over your shoulder and see, like, why aren't you getting these things? Also, because I was at boarding school, we were having study hall every night from seven to nine. So, you know, which, of course, we rebelled against and got in the principal's office quite a bit. Um, 
and since it was a boarding school, like, um, definitely got into, <laughs> uh, but at the same time, um, this school was so cool about punk rock that, um, they let me take over a tool shed and turn it into a practice space. And, you know, we're banging out Dag Nasty covers in, in the tool shed, um, with my bandmates who were in college, <laughs> you know, yeah. down, which was super, you know, weird. So, um, which I'm sure students going to Brem these days, if they know that, that in years past, they had a, a, a guy doing a band in one of their tool sheds, uh, probably, um, think that was pretty funny but anyways so we had this tiny school and you know but all the individual attention meant that for things like i always give this example we had a math teacher um we called him dr paul his, i don't paul kasuth i think was his name and he like he was the first person to ever play throbbing gristle for me by the way um <laughs> because he was like an old hippie and um it, he like the way he taught math, for example, was like the very first day of class, he made us like throw out the textbook and he said, we're going to race a cardboard boat and a cardboard boat regatta. <laughs> we're like, what? what does that have to do with math? And he was like, oh, wait, you'll find out. Cause, and then I remember telling him, like, I don't swim very well. And then he's like, well, you better do good math then. And, uh, <laughs> which is great. And, you know, we made a boat out of cardboard and we would, and then he would say um, things like, well, what are you interested in? And I would say like minor threat, you know, and then he'd be like, well, let's talk about how math affects music. And we do a whole lesson on, you know, like I remember him doing a class on the math of punk rock mm. on the fly because I said, you know, the thing I was most interested in was, was, you know, minor threat or something. And I just threw that out there. Right. But because he had six students, he could do that. Right. Mm -hmm. And he could, he could really give you that kind of individualized education. And, you know, for that reason, and it's funny because music had taken over my life too. Like I wanted to, you know, I was into hardcore in the same way. And it's funny because our life paths are so, so similar. <laughs> you got mm -hmm. same things. And, um, as, as kids. And so, you know, what's funny about that too, Duncan, is that I think about it is that I was growing up in Bloomington, Indiana. You were growing up in Louisville, which is only like three hour drive from each other. But most kids growing up in Louisville and Bloomington are never going to meet each other. Right? right. But because of the tribe that hardcore was, you know, you know, we ended up becoming friends and seeing each other at shows, you know, several times a year because we were both going to Dayton for all the Dayton shows. We were both going to Columbus for all those shows. Mm -hmm. And that's when we both learned that we were going through these things. So we talked about these things that far back. But for me, I still, you know, I wrote that first attempt at a novel in my notebook and it was terrible. I realized that and then I got to the point where I, when I started learning how many rules there were to grammar for many years, I was like, you know what? I'll never learn all those rules. And so I gave up on writing like in the early part of, of my life until I started doing zines. Right. Mm -hmm. And my earliest zines are terrible because they're all caps because I was afraid. 
right? Like the very first issue of Voice Box is all caps because I was afraid and I got made fun of for it, right? And I fixed it by episode by issue three and found somebody to help me edit. <laughs> but the very first time I tried to do a zine, I was so afraid of grammar, I just made everything all caps because I was honestly terrified of it. Mm-hmm. And that's why, that's why I didn't write for years is that I was afraid of it. And so the process of learning to write was one of like, all right, well, fuck, now I got to learn that yeah. as an adult because I was yeah. scared of it as a kid. Now, I did what I had to do to graduate school to learn the rules enough to graduate from school. But to take it where I could like sit at the computer and write a story, I had I had to retrain myself as, as, as an adult. Did you have anything like that, like specifically holding you back or, or, or scaring you in those early days when you started to take reading and writing seriously? Because that's, I know that's pretty hardcore for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was, because I, I started so late, I think, and I had aversion to reading just from, as I, I mean, I hate to say trauma response, but I guess you could say it was a trauma response. Um, I, I would write and I'd do zines and I'd communicate and I'd misspell things because we didn't have spell check back then. Right. Uh, and there was this weird sense of shame uh, when you would make a mistake and people would call you out on it and they would not say, oh, you misspelled this. They would make fun of you, right? That's just right. what people are. I think if I had had a, I think... You know, when I teach classes at the university, my students feel they have a good grasp on grammar, on punctuation, on all of these things. Uh, but but I find that they, they don't as much as they think they do. But if I were to try to introduce gr- grammar or punctuation lessons, I lose them sort of uh, their attention span. Uh, and so it's a delicate balance with them and for me as well, I think sometimes, you know, there's certain words that I, or rules I have to look up every time because my mind won't remember them, but I try to make it very clear. I try to, um, to work with them. And I think with me as a writer, and I'm, I'm not sure if I'm entirely going to address, address your, your point here, but I was very heartened in, in a way by reading the Kafka's, Kafka's uh, diaries because his obsession with exactitude and precision in writing, uh, it taught me to re- edit and revise my own work in a, in a very mindful way repeatedly. Um, that every opportunity to have your eyes on this thing, uh, using a very a variety of techniques of changing fonts, of printing out, of doing it on the screen, of what, you know, sitting on it for a few months, those things help me as a writer see with new eyes. Well, and you've also experimented with um, breaking the rules. A little bit, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Especially, I, I think it's supercell anemia, right? Like, there's, there's, there's all kinds of funky grammar in that one, or am I remembering that right? It's, I, I read that 
book when you put it out. So I yeah, no, um, I, I'm in the unique position of, of you're re-editing it. it right now, right? So. Right, um, very slowly because I don't have a lot of time right now. But um, it, it's a lot of a lot of uh, green writing for sure. And <laughs> I and love that book. It, I love it. So uh, thank you. I just I'm always surprised by how many uh, prepositional phrases are in there. I'm just like wow. All right. There are a lot of errors in there. And I think that uh, I think if my editor, who I believe you worked with at one time, if they had been a little more, I think that that they were a bit of a hands-off editor. Um, And so I think there's a lot of errors in there that could have been caught. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm grateful for, for, that they took a book and that they believed yeah. in it, you know, uh, for yeah. as briefly as that that press was around. But, um, you know, when I look at it now, going back, I'm like, Oof. oh boy, Oof. yeah. Well, yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure you do that with. I mean, all artists do that, you know. I'm sure you do that with Endpoint Records and 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 Guilt and everything. But um, I, I hate to dance back around to something but uh just because it occurred to me but another one of those things where i just hear you telling your story and i'm just like god that's exactly my scenario is that i had the exact same thing with reading where like even though i was reading stephen king and dune and clive barker and whatever my father um and partially because my my reading bounced up a lot in the year after my mother passed and my father, who was suddenly a single dad at, you know, with a 16 year old and me being 12 years old, when when uh, and being the academic that he was, is he basically said to me at one point, and I don't think he he's basically said to me, I will buy you any book you want, any book you want, as long as you prove to me that you read it. I'm having to have discussions with my father about the body politic, the story about like hands and a revolution and whatever. And a lot of it went over my dad's head, but he, you know, would listen. And I will say, this is my copy of my very first Clive Barker book, the same one that I had, The Inhuman Condition. My, my copy of The Stand, which still has a note to must do social studies report um, <laughs> from seventh grade in there and I still have those beat up copies and what's hilarious to me about you know when when I hear people now because I'm more friends with parents right and they're saying like I, I just can't get my kids to read and how many times I've had to suggest to them well have you ever sat down and read with them and said here I'm going to set a timer every night after dinner and we're going to read for 30 minutes and I will read with you right Mm-hmm. Um, my father and I did that like mm-hmm. after, you know, the, the year after my mother died, he would, before we would clear the, the dishes from dinner, we, he would basically look at the time and it, and then he'd pull out a book. I'd pull out a book. Now at the same time, my father was a guy who used to watch sports with a book in his lap, right? Cause he was an academic. And I, so now when I watch football, I always have a book that I'm reading during, because you know, there's a lot of dead space in football. But I learned that from my father. And I think it's so important for people that if you have a kid with a learning disability and you're listening to this, wondering like, how do I get them to read? How do I take care of that? Like you have to lead by example. And 
you know, the fact that your father said, like, you know, I don't have much, but I'm going to make sure that you have these books. I think that's key to that is like to encourage that reading. If you get a chance, if you find something that they like, even if you don't, I don't give a crap about Harry Potter, but if, if, you know, I have, if there's a kid who's going to read Harry Potter, great, go. Encourage reading. And I do think, you know, being a part of it with them, that's a huge part of it. And for me, in breaking down and learning these systems, when I decide, I've always wanted to be a storyteller because of the power that I felt reading this book, right? Mm -hmm. Now, is Clive Barker my favorite author as an adult? No, he's not. Um, I have a lot of authors that I prefer. I mean, I'm spending five years of my life devoted to studying Phil K. Dick now. Right. And he's not even my favorite science fiction writer. I have my reasons for doing this, <laughs> but he is one of my favorites, but I'm spending five years doing this Philip K. Dick thing. Now, I've learned a lot, and it's been an interesting thing, but that power of, of what I felt in seventh grade when the two stories that broke me, that turned me into wanting to be a writer, was The Wrath by Stephen King. I talk about it all the time on this podcast. Uh, Stephen Graham Jones and I spent almost... 25 minutes talking about the raft. So you should go back and listen to that interview. He's a way smarter guy than me uh, talking about it. But um, the raft and the body politic, partially because the body politic was so goddamn weird. And I was like, and it made me feel so many things. I wanted to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. I wanted to do that. Just like I wanted to do punk rock because I wanted to, I wanted to make the feeling that I had when, I saw Endpoint or when I saw um, Sick of It All, right? And I was like mm -hmm. singing along and I wanted to do that. I wasn't as good at that, so I didn't <laughs> succeed in that. But with writing, I found a system and I found a way to, to, to succeed at it because, for, first of all, I could do it by myself and I could train myself. But to say that I got eight books on the shelf right now and I've probably written twice as many, right? But the, the thing is, is that I don't think I would have ever been able to accomplish that if I didn't have a school that specialized in trying to, to reach somebody like me. And I was lucky, right? And so I would say, even if you didn't finish school at DePaul, don't you feel like a huge part of that is having somebody at least for a short period of time you know, like that woman that says, your, like, your intelligence terrifies me. Even just having somebody say that had to trigger something in you, right? Like, those years had to be very important. I'm sorry, I talked a lot. Duncan, go. Uh, no, it's, it's okay. Um, you know, with that, I did actually finish there, but they, they, they were considering another year so that I could, uh, I think it was as punishment for acting out, really. It was just right. Like, um, but uh, you know, my parents were 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 smart to that, wise to that little play. I think it's always good to feel a sense of when you're validated in some way. Um, but I think it's a, it's much harder uh, to find that in yourself. And I think that's why writers struggle. You know, the average writer struggles with with reading his or her or their work one day and, and saying, this is the worst thing that has ever been written by a human being. And then coming back another day and saying like, oh, it's really not that bad. Um, 
and as as people who grew up at odds with certain kinds of thinking, right, processing, uh, writing, it's 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 a whole different kind of struggle, right, and and there are some times where I get so involved in editing and thinking about a word, right? Just a word that I go in so deep with it that the word no longer has its wordness and it becomes this weird abstract. And I'm, I'll, I'll sit, I'll have to pull back and say like, well, is this a word any, anymore? And, and kind of like, uh, but I, I, I like that. I like kind of going in microscopically and looking at, at the language and, uh, you know, uh, asking those important questions. And you're, you're um, yeah, like you've published eight books. I am so slow in getting my books out sometimes because I'm so slow to, to let them go. Right. And, yeah. um, and I've gotten a little bit better about, you know. Well, Dog Between, Between was one that came together pretty quickly, right? For you, I, yeah. Yeah, that one, that one was kind of, it was close to its form now uh, within a year of the of it first coming, probably less than a year. Um, yeah. But that was the first time, I mean, it's the most realist novel I have, right? Everything else is, is uh, odd and speculative in some way, but this one is very much yeah. Well, I'm excited that you've hinted that you're, you're, you're working on a horror novel, which I'm very Yeah. About. Yeah. I hit a moment today where I said, what is, <laughs> I was working on it. And uh, I was like, would it be more scary if someone didn't, you know, that somebody sees something and I'm like, would it be scarier if no one else sees it? Or if then later someone validates that they had seen it. And I'm like sitting there in this cafe going, <laughs> yeah. uh, those, and, those are the and, things you think about uh, yeah 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 well yeah. it should be noted that a lot of my novels spend 15 years in my brain before like mm. ring of fire for example um was one that i thought about for 15 years researched and everything and and, and may seem you know i the one that i'm publishing next year with clash uh is the quickest from idea to finish that i've ever had uh, this one hit me like a lightning bolt can't mm. talk about it yet. However, um, the, you know, a lot of them spend years gestating and, and, um, I don't have the problem that you do with the, with the, the letting go. Once I, once I lock it in and I know that I feel good about it, I, I, I can do that. Um, however, I do, th and I th don't think either way is, is right because I think that whatever your process was for like the city awake, for example, like I love the finished product. So if you tortured yourself over it for a couple of years, sorry, you did that, but it worked out for me as a reader. So I'm okay with that, you know? Uh, and, uh, you know, so the process could be different for everybody. I don't find, you know, it's funny because I see posts sometimes that writers do on Twitter or Facebook where they talk about writing like torture. Mm -hmm. And I can't relate to that at all because I fucking love it. And I wish I had more time to write. And like, so whenever people are like, 
you know, writing to put memes about like writing is torture. I'm like, well, fuck you. Give me your writing time then. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, I think they do that. I, I, those are like harvesting moves. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah there's right. there's a, a friend of mine that I, you know, the majority of what they post is is to farm likes. Right. You know, my Twitter is very unprofessional. I don't have any methodology. I'm just like, this is something I listened to today. But, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I think, uh, yeah, I don't find anything torturous about it. I think there are moments that I would like to have finished a project sooner in its whatever draft version. Playing with language is a great privilege. Right. Yeah. And just wow. What a great thing to do. And I think that, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I also, there's, as you know, in the writing world, there's a lot of privilege where maybe this is the toughest thing that some of them have come across in their life is, you know. <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting point, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, well, and then you get these little, um, you get, uh, I don't know. Anyways, for me, as far as, like, when I first started and I, said this is like when I first started doing zines it was like I couldn't even grasp the idea of like having to know what even having to know which letters were capitalized and which or which words were capitalized and which weren't just like scared the shit out of me but I had this drive and passion to to do the zines and to do the thing right and for me I got and it's not that I don't care about activism anymore but for me the the way that kind of music took over for a few years of your life that was like the thing for me, it was activism and, and it was like getting arrested a bazillion times and like, you know, doing those things. And, and I got, it's not that I don't care about those issues anymore. Cause I do, I just, you know, found that strategy was a little bit uh, better as I got older and found ways that I wanted to communicate my issues. And, and a lot of it was like saying like, Hey, I, I, I've always cared about storytelling. So now I want to use my storytelling for, for good. And it's not that I write didactic horror because not everything's political. That being said, all these things I had to train myself. I had to, I had to tell myself like, well, okay, well, if you're going to do this, you can't not care about these things. You're going to have to train yourself. And, um, and honestly, you know, doing track changes with your editor, who's like obliterating your manuscript will teach you grammar super fast. You know, um, I know some people don't like that process of going through and doing those things, but mm -hmm. I do. Your people are lucky as hell that Grammarly exists now. That's a thing that I would have like, you know, probably traded a toe for at a certain mm -hmm. time in my life. Now, all these things, though, you have to, if you're going to sit down and write a book, like everybody has to do it a little differently. People, you know, there's the whole great debate between pantsers and people who write from outlines. I'm an outliner. And for me, that was one way that I had heard a quote where Richard Matheson, the author of I Am Legend and a bazillion things, mm -hmm. he had said that he thinks of the moments of suspense in a story as, as rungs in a ladder that you're climbing to the ladder. And honestly, even though it was just, he was talking about suspense for me, thinking of a story as rungs of a ladder that I'm climbing was super important. And I know some writers hate outlines me. I need it. I need it. I need to be able to look at the map. I can ignore the map sometimes, but I need to look at it. I need mm -hmm. to look over and also 
because like I don't have the privilege of being able to write every day. So I need to have my outline and my map. Now, when you started writing these serious longer pieces and getting more into it, what are ways that you were, um, you know, for me, the outlines was about managing my disability, a lot of it. Mm -hmm. So what are ways that you manage your disability in order to become a novelist, you know, and to do that, to be a writer? Yeah. And, and that way you and I are probably pretty far apart, right? Um, right. I love, uh, I, you call it pantser, uh, which I think is an interesting term, but I've actually pantser. never heard. You've never, heard you've never heard pantser? This is a pantser. Um, no, I've always, uh, in my whole world of writing, we call it uh, uh, discovery. And so for me, most of my writing story ideas come to me as a sound or an image. Like it might be a first line that just kind of comes in my head while I'm driving and I stop and write it down somewhere. Um, and, and as I go, I, I allow my subconscious to, to have a little bit of freedom in guiding me. I think, you know, some spiritual people would call them muses, but I, I don't think that's what it is. I think it's just that my mind is always working in the back on some things. And so I get a thing moving where I'm, I'm sort of getting it. And then if I hit a, what people might call writer's block, I jump and just put a character in a situation, right? Or I, you know, write uh, some mood scenes. And as I go, so with the book I'm, I'm currently working on now, I think I got about 150 pages in. Then I, I, I looked at it structurally a little bit and I said, which is, this is the first time I've actually ever done this. And then I, I created little slugs for those sections that I wanted to add throughout. Usually I get the whole thing finished. I print out the sections or chapters and I lie them on the floor and I read each one and I grade them, evaluate them and decide which ones are getting yanked and uh, rewritten or which ones, you know, uh, are pretty good and just need a little, a little bit of love. But I think, so to answer your question, I have a lot of different ways, but the one that I tell my students can be helpful is to write a book in moments uh, that, that, you know, books exist not as a grand narrative necessarily, but as, as real moments that exist on a timeline. And then uh, I say, give yourself different draft versions, right? So you may go, like one I'll go through and look for missed opportunities where I can expand interiority or something like that. Uh, I might then go look for uh, narrative spandrels or the themes like either sonically or, or, or words like that connect to certain metaphors. Uh, I'll do multiple passes where I pay attention to language. Um, and as an editor, you know, most of the manuscripts that, that come my way as, as a publisher are so clean um, that I don't worry so much about the punctuation and grammar, but I do sometimes get in there and show them 
ways that a line could be uh, a little more energetic and musical. Mm-hmm. And there's that fine line between giving somebody too many comments to process and enough comments that it, it helps them guide themselves, right? Right. Um, and I don't know with Lisa, because I believe that you may edit your books now. Um, I, I'm not sure what Lisa's uh, approach is to, to editing. I've worked mostly with Christoph at, at, at Flash, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, you know, he's really hands-on as far as, well, with Killing Machines, like um, he made me start the novel at chapter chapter five and and rewrite the whole thing like he just like told me like hey chapter five is where it all starts and you know he's he had a huge impact on it because that next draft you know really made the book work in a lot of ways because i was i was spending too much time world building to that point and he Mm -hmm. knew that that's where the story started and what i appreciate too is with with an editor is when the when you know they'll tell you you know a lot of a lot of editors like they first of all they'd be afraid of the amount of work <laughs> that's involved to tell you something like that mm-hmm. you know they would just turn down a book and say well it didn't start at the right place so i'm not going to do it but what mm-hmm. i really appreciated was christoph was like you know told me like hey i really like this book but you started at the wrong spot <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and here you go and then there's progress and it works differently this book that we're doing next year like you know he basically told me like don't change a thing you know when it came in Mm -hmm. and um you know we feel like it's and i knew that i've never been so confident in a book duncan i wish I, i could talk more about it publicly i've never been so confident in a book um uh there's ones that i've written that i like better but i'm not as confident in right Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really confident in this one. And, and so, but it's funny because, you know, an editor can, you know, you know, really, you know, you have to be open to listen to it too, because other people have other eyes. Right. But mm-hmm. I will say another thing that I, about the difference between your assistant, the discovery thing, like I do want to defend outlining a little bit as far as discovery goes, because I am a person who I'm religious about outlines. But for example, in my science fiction novel, Not Alone, I had two characters that were romantic interests and within one sentence looked at it and said they're brother and sister. And that's way more interesting, this relationship with their brothers and sister. And in the middle of a sentence, decided that and rewound at the beginning of the novel and started over. And then just, you know, the outline's fluid. I had outlined the whole thing with them being romantic partners and then realized that their relationship was much more interesting as brother and sister, mm-hmm. right? Changed everything. The outline changed a lot. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. And, but so discovery is the thing that can still happen in that, in those. Oh, movies. no, no, no. And I'm not, I, that wasn't my, you know. Yeah, I, I know you want to do that. Yeah, yeah, we 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 all come to our stories and 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 how we do them in different ways, and I don't think any one manner is is better than the other. Um, so I always say to writers, uh, uh, know yourself, you know, know yourself and know what's going to work for you. One thing that I thought was really interesting that Matt Bell does 
is, and by the way, his new book, How to Re Refuse to Be Done, I'm gonna do his plug here, uh, is it's a book on craft that's actually, and most books I get on crafters, I'm just like, eh. uh, yeah. this one, uh, this one is really quite, really smart. And so one of his things he does is after he finishes a draft, he rewrites it. And, and he's kind of like, I think part of it is typing, retyping it, but um, it's an interesting thing because it gets you to think about the book in a different way. Um, and, and when I read that, I was like, oh my gosh, that sounds like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. <laughs> and, uh, and then I, I sort of said, okay, all right. Well, if I hate it so much, maybe there's something, maybe there's <laughs> something, something to, to it. it. Yeah, yeah. And I, uh, I've talked to some other writers who do it, and they, they you know, and I have rewritten it, but I, I'm so draft. I do so many drafts, like I'll be working, and I'll, uh, 30 pages in, I'll, I'll start revising. And you know, whenever I'm not feeling particularly creative, I have those moments of where my maybe more logical mind's on that I want to look at those drafts. Well, I, um, Punk Rock Ghost Story, my novel Punk Rock Ghost Story, because we spent seven years um, from when I first thought of it, trying to convince people that the band in the book was real. I had seven years between when I sold the, the idea to Jeff at Deadite <laughs> and when it came out. And at the beginning of the seven years, I wrote a draft of it. And when we got close to the time, because we had made a, we made a literal seven year plan of how to, with, they included the documentary that we made and all that other stuff to do the Blair Witch thing of like convincing people that the fuckers were a real Indiana band from 1982, right? Uh -huh. And uh, so because we had that seven years, by the time we got around to where Jeff was like, oh, we're almost, it's almost time to publish Punk Rock Ghost Story. I was like, I need to start it over. <laughs> and because I was such a better writer, and I literally did not look at the other draft, not once. And I just started from page zero. It was the same story, essentially the same outline, but I just started from scratch and rewrote the whole thing. So that's the only time I've really done that. Oh my God, it was such a better book. It was such a better book because uh, all the, you know, first of all, for thinking about the story for seven years, still, right? Then just the idea of like, you've grown as a person since you started it. And mm. also because that, but I'm glad that version existed. I, I'm glad I wrote that other version because I got a lot out of my system. And right. for one thing, it was, um, you know, I tried to be too tricky with it. I tried to do some in first person and some, you know, cause there was time jumps and all this other stuff. And then I just, I simplified mm -hmm. it, you know, I just, right made it better and now i'm very very proud of that book but and what it says about punk rock too which you know a few people have caught on to you know i was really trying with to use the ghost story to talk about punk rock before the internet and punk rock after the internet right mm -hmm. and you know how different punk rock pre and post internet is and and you know and actually having those seven years to meditate more on, on, and see the differences. Like mm -hmm. what was important. It was good. It mm -hmm. was a good thing. That's interesting. Matt Bell, I need to read that book because I, 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 
I just saw an interview with him, and I really appreciated his point of view in it. And um, I, I actually, I actually enjoy craft books to a degree, but I also mm-hmm. reserve the right to to internalize and move on. <laughs> right? well, I think I think the one reason I really disliked him is because there's a lot of filler. I mean, I feel like yeah. if you if it was a just a bullet pointed list of things, I would I would get more out of that. But there's like you know, there's a whole narrative you have to do to make it a book that I'm just so disinterested in usually. Yeah. Uh, but I think uh, it's very interesting that your, that, uh, your process, I, I, I very much like hearing about it. Um, for me, it's, it's very different because I, I think, and I don't, I, you know, I just realized, I don't know what you do for a living, but like my job um, is, it's so, it, it take, you know, it takes your life in this way, right? It, it yeah. occupies, it's a big part of your life. And so I have to do so much work with writing and, and editing and, and all of that there, that there are just some days that I just like, I don't want to write. Like I'm just tired and sure. I just want to just stare into space and, you know, oh, oh. <laughs> uh, sometimes, you know, just, I can lose half a day just going. Uh, but I think. I, I'm in the same field as Rob, by the way. I, I work with kids with autism, so. Okay, okay. Yeah. And uh, and so, you know, as well, right? Like, um, yeah. reaching out to, to people. Uh, so, uh, I have to create times, right? Like, uh, for writing and for, and I learned this from Brian Evanson, who, you know, um, if you've been if you're, on the podcast before so mm-hmm. yeah. if you're if you're ever with brian you know uh i stayed with him in, in rhode island once when he was there and you know we'd be having a nice conversation and he'd just look down and go i'll be back in 15 minutes i'm gonna write and he'll just go up there and he'll write because he has a you know a writing habit that he, he does and for me i do it the writing i do in public spaces with ambient noises um, because it gets me out of my house, right? So um, on my days that I don't teach, I go to a cafe or a restaurant and I sit down and I write. And when the pandemic hit, I could only do that in the summer, which was, you know, it just stopped progress on a book. Uh, Revising is a whole different thing. I need quiet to my focus, but, um, yeah, so like um, my process is very unique uh, in, in, in how it, I don't, maybe it's not unique to other academics, right? But like to my, to a lot of my writer friends where they're like, oh, I sat down for seven hours and wrote today. And I'm just like, I, I don't ever have seven free hours, right? Uh, well, see, as, as for me, as an educator, it's one of the reasons why I stay doing you know, being a teacher's aide with kids with disabilities is because the vacations are important for me, the breaks, because we get breaks throughout the year. And so like Christmas break is like, that's go time for the novel. Cause I do like 14 hour days. Now during when I'm working, um, I wake up at five 30 and I write till I have to, I have, fi- I have a five minute commute to work mm-hmm. on my bike. And so I write in the mornings from five 30 to to eight ten, you know like wow that's idyllic 
yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, my commute is one hour each way on the highway. Yeah, yeah it's, it's not fun, especially in South Dakota in the winter. But um, Well, I pay up the nose for living in Ocean Beach, but... Uh, no, no, it's my dream. Like, when people are like, what are you going to do if you win the lottery ever? It's, I'm going to move to California and work at a pizza place. <laughs> it's it's, it's right. always like, you know... Just the, just like, that just sounds like heaven. Um, but yeah, like in the summers, uh, like last summer, I lost the summer to uh, a spinal issue that had me in a lot of pain and, and the doctors a lot. Usually that's when I really do a lot of work for the, the press, right? Like that's when I have time and I'll maybe revise the website or I'll put in an accounting system or I'll, you know, edit several of the books that are, have been picked up or I'll design some of the covers you know like that's when I can have time to just dedicate to that where I'm not just doing it you know because I really my what I do professionally has other components like South Dakota Review and and Astrofield Press so, uh, and committee duty and all of that and and it's just your brain is just tired at the end of the day um, totally and uh, so I think you know, kind of speaking about dyslexia, one thing I, I find very good about it is that we are creative thinkers, right? And this is something that you find, or, or we excel in other areas that, that yeah, there's causes. a us. There's a lot of writers I could have called on today that I know who are dyslexic, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. like Carrie Edwards is deceased, but Carrie, unlike you, who did all caps, they did uh, lowercase. Yeah, everything in lowercase, and um, she used punctuation creatively, and so did Cormac uh, McCarthy. So <laughs> right, right, right. Um, and I think you know, uh, you know, Caitlyn Jenner uh, was a runner, right? Um, it's rare that I will re reference Caitlyn Jenner in any sort of positive, positive light, right? Like, but. Uh, you know, that, uh, that story. You know, Whoopi Goldberg is a famous uh, person with dyslexia too, who's a very creative person. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and um, and I reference her partially because she's been really outspoken about it. And I know I used to know more of, of who because at my school they used to have like framed photos of all these famous people. Up, right. You know, that were that like, hey, remember you can be like these people. You know, I, I, I think what you're saying is, you know, we are creative people because I think, you know, also, you know, we've had challenges and we've had to work around them. And those of us who, you know, because that's the thing is like, not to pat myself too hard on the back for something, but, um, and I'll say this about you too, is, is that we're both, you know, I know I'm a smart person, right? And I had this period in my childhood where people were calling me dumb. I knew that I was a smart person. I knew that my parents were both smart people and that I came from smart people, right? And that I had this, you know, ability to learn these things, but it was, I knew that I had challenges. So, and for example, and you know, one of the things like, as far as your place in the hardcore scene, it's always funny to me because I said at one point, like I remember saying to somebody who's, they were talking about by the grace of God. And I said, you shouldn't be surprised that there's two academics kind of hit the front or the forefront of that band. You know, like you can listen to the band and know that they're smarter people. Right. It doesn't, <laughs> mean, 
you know. And for for example, too, like another person who has all kinds of learning challenges and has made it in in our scene is Carl from Earth Crisis. Um, and one of the things about Carl is, is that people don't know is Carl is insanely knowledgeable about history. And if you get Carl going, right, talking about history, which I have right, many times, um, Carl's insanely knowledgeable. But when you if you really parse down Earth Crisis lyrics, you see that. But also, Carl is a person who writes great lyrics for his band. And how does he do it? He does it in a very different way from most people. He did it in a way that is similar to what we're talking about, about learning our... Um, because he and I have talked about like learning, like getting around learning disabilities and writing. And Carl... Every Earth Crisis song has been a story that Carl has written, an entire story, right? Mm. And what he does is he writes entire stories, pages long in his notebooks, and he underlines certain passages that make it into the lyrics. And that's why some of the songs like Cease to Exist or Cities Fall are more cinematic than a lot of other hardcore bands. Because he was straight up writing a story about society collapsing and turned it into Cities Fall. He mm. was writing a story about nuclear war. It turns into Cease to Exist, right? Wither is about her uh, people fighting heroin addiction. And this is the Earth Crisis nerd in me coming out. But this is also the guy who sat down and asked Carl, like, how do you do it? Mm -hmm. You know, how do you write such incredible lyrics coming from a position of like, and I don't think he's diagnosed with a learning disability, but he and I've talked about it and we know that he has one. Right. Yeah. And whether he was diagnosed with it or not, when I lived in Syracuse, I spent many hours talking to Carl about dyslexia and my challenges. And I learned a lot. And that's when I started asking him about his process because I was like, I wanted to know. And it's really interesting to see. So like, if you go back and you listen to like some of those songs that are more cinematic, you can, you can tell this, you know, regardless, like his writing process is, is such an example of, of, of learning to, to cope with your disability, mm -hmm. right? Because he doesn't write songs like, I don't know how most people write lyrics, right? But I learned from Carl, so I learned his system. So now, like, when I wrote the lyrics for the fucker songs for Punk Rock Ghost Story, I did what he told me to do, which was listen to the music a bunch of times, catch the rhythm, write it out as a story underline the parts that you think are going to make it and mm -hmm. then and then put them to the music right hmm. but he figured that out because like he was a person that had all those same challenges as us like you know he had people you know i think a lot of people from hardcore are people that got bullied as kids and found you know power and strength in it but hmm. Anyways, I'm going off on a tangent now. All right. So, Duncan, you've given me a lot of your time and we've talked a lot about the learning disabilities. Do you have before we get into where people can find your books and your work? Um, do you have anything else that you want to kind of conclude with with about like the journey and the process of, of being a writer with dyslexia? Because, I, I, you know, my whole goal today was to give people inspiration that you know, yeah. like they can do this, like being, you know, being a person with dyslexia, you can, you can, because the thing is, whether you are a bestseller or win awards or whatever, 
the greatest reward you're ever going to have as a novelist is seeing the completed work in your doc, in your word doc, <laughs> you know, whatever, like it's done. That's better than all the other shit, in my opinion, like that feeling of completion. Yeah. I always tell people enjoy the 15 seconds after you see your book, uh, yeah. because the, the crushing reality of life comes right back after on its tail. Um, right. You know, you're like, Oh my God, what a great moment. My book, my book. And then you're like, Shelf it. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I, I, I think that what's key to, to when you're someone like us is it's part of that punk rock ethic of just don't ask for permission. Just do it. Just, mm -hmm. just go for it. And you know what? People might not get it, but the, but you're not doing it for them, right? You're doing it for, you know, yourself. And I've heard a lot of no's in my life. You've heard a lot of no's. I've, I've been told I'm stupid or I'm not talented or, you know, uh, you know, whatever decision it is, I've been told no. And I just have always been maybe it's dumb enough to go, I don't care, right? Yeah. And Jason, uh, Jason Harmacher is this way too, is that, you know, his whole uh, Syria project was like, academics were like, well, no, no, there's no way you're talking to these, these religious leaders and getting to record them. And he's like, no, I did. I just asked them and they said, yes, you know, like, and he just did it and he did it himself. And I just think that that's really important because people with learning challenges are going to, or neurodiversity, people who are neurodiverse as well, like we're going to be told that no, and it, this isn't how it's done, uh, but we can reinvent things and we can make a space and eventually people have will accept it right mm -hmm. they'll see right and if you have an editor who's smart enough to see your worth right and not say ah you know this needs editorial work but sees your vision that that's that's a really great thing because i think uh yeah. You're, you're right. A lot of people look at it and say, I'll have to work on this and it might not make me a lot of money. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, the nose are a big thing. You have to be able, you can't do this if you don't have thick skin first off, like, mm -hmm. um, you know, Frank, oh, no. yeah, Frank Herbert, uh, got Dune was rejected by every publisher to the point that the original hardcover of Dune was published by an art, an auto parts catalog publisher who, and you know, who took a chance because he was like, wait, I think this is great. And then he's like, I guess I'm in the science fiction business now. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was rejected by everybody. Now it, you know, like, you know, we wouldn't have Dune if, like, mm -hmm. Frank Herbert had been like, everybody's rejecting this. I don't see it, you know. Yeah. And it, it requires, you know, it, it's a thing, you know. But, um, and look, and I, and I just want to say on a, on a personal level, like, um, 
you know, like for anyone who doesn't know what the hardcore scene is like for, for punk rock in, in the early nineties, when I, when you and I were growing up, uh, you know, we would travel around and go to everybody's shows in other cities. And so, um, you know, we had friends in all these other cities, but you know, it, it's not the same as like having friends that you're around every day, but the people that you saw in these other cities, they mattered to you. They cared because, you know, you related to them because they mm -hmm. were the weirdos in the other town like you. And uh, one of the reasons why like Endpoint was always Endpoint and your other band Guilt were always important to me is because um, I was looking up on stage and seeing somebody playing music who um, I could relate to because you and I would talk about you know, I, I, I have a very distinct memory of standing out in front of a, a show in Dayton and us having a conversation about dyslexia um, because it was a life-changing moment for me outside the news space. I believe Step Down and Endpoint were both playing that night. And I remember, <laughs> I remember it was 1991 and I was going to boarding school already at that point And you just telling me like, Oh, I have dyslexia too. And yeah. I had challenges. Yeah. People used to call me stupid too. Like I very distinctly remember having that conversation with you. And because later on that night you were rocking out with endpoint, um, you know, uh, I went home within a time I hate, and was the most recent record at that point catharsis was recorded it wasn't mm -hmm. out but you know when i got home to my boarding school and i'm telling the other two punk rockers at the school hey duncan the guitar player from this band is ju he's just like us you know <laughs> it was it was powerful it was meaningful and so that, that that's something that still you know 30 plus years later, I hold on to, and it's one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation with you. So thank you, Duncan, for that. On that mm -hmm. note, um, I, you know, I, I see your books on my shelf right below me. They're, they're under a stack of James Reich's books, honestly. <laughs> so, um, in a very valued place, um, they all three of the books of yours that I have, uh, Supercell, Anemia, um, Dog Between Us, and uh, City Awake are fantastic. I know I still have a few books of yours to get um, of, of Flesh and Fur I don't have, but tell the folks about your books and where they can find them. And um, I know you got plans Supercell's coming back out, right? Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not 100% just yet. Um, uh, We'll see once the draft is finished, the revision. But um, uh, I have two novels, yeah, on uh, Stalking Horse Press. Uh, you can order through them directly or online somewhere or through your local store. Um, uh, there is a collaboration I did with uh, um, oh my gosh, Daniel. Uh, and uh, it's called, uh, man, yeah, my brain is not participating. Uh, uh, the House and the Haunts. Uh, I'd remember it on a good day. Uh, I think I'm sundown. But uh, uh, <laughs> of Flesh and Fur is actually now out of print. They, uh, they, they only printed 500 of them, I think. Mm. 
and so they only keep the cupboard only keeps a, like a few people in repress, and it's usually their solicited authors, mm. um, uh, like Evanson or Bell. Uh, oh, I'll still track it down at some point. Uh, oh, I'm sure somebody's selling it. <laughs> it won't be like on eBay or whatever on Amazon. Whenever you look up my first book, it's like you know their algorithms are so crazy. They'll say like seven thousand dollars some days. It's like, mm. yeah. Well, you know, um, uh, it's funny how uh, too sometimes like uh, a work like that can just bounce around, and then somebody can you know and find it. But um, but. The City Awake and A Dog Between are easy to find. They're they're um, and they're both highly recommended from me. Uh, I think uh, City Awake just uh, touched me a lot. And I I, I remember you and I had a, a, a discussion about that book uh, too when I was testing the waters with my interview abilities. But I uh, so there is somewhere on YouTube a discussion of Duncan or where Duncan and I are talking about that book. Which was funny because I totally um, uh, misread part of it or had an interpretation that you found mm. very interesting. So if you want to go back and hear that discussion, it's it's funny <laughs> because I like way read deeper into it <laughs> in some ways too. And it was kind of funny, um, but I I love that book. I I I thought it was it was excellent. Um, Thank and, you. And a dog between was. Uh, it's a very emotionally heavy book in a really cool way. Um, and, and, um, just as your friend, I just, uh, you know, I kind of felt every page of it in a really cool way. Um, and, uh, I really, um, appreciate that book as well. So, and I, I appreciate your time and for talking to us about this. Uh, the other thing about this is just to remind people with learning disabilities, you, you have the power to overcome these things. They, um, they, they're not going to rule over you um, mm -hmm. because um, you can. Um, I just realized that I have this book called "The World Hitler Never Made" about alternate history. About uh -huh. and I have this swastika that's been hanging over my shoulder the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Look, luckily, it's a, it's a history book about alternate history uh, because I'm a man in the high castle nerd. Mm -hmm. and, so, and I just realized I had a swastika over my shoulder this whole time. That was really kind of dumb. All right. On that fun mm -hmm. note. Uh, <laughs> it's just going to, you're going to blur it out, right? Uh, yeah. I'm not as good at the video editing as the audio editing ah. is the thing. Um, I, I got to get better at that. But um yeah. Anyways, it was awesome talking to you, Duncan, about this. Yeah, it's, uh, it's always great talking to you. Yeah, and and um, I will. I'll have you back for something a little bit more fun at some point. But um, but it's it's cool too because I had Rob on. Uh, so now I, I've had um, uh, two uh, Louisville um, hardcore icons on already. So <laughs> like I, I, you know, Rob was cool because we talked about. Uh, we did punk rock history for the first part and then mm -hmm. talked about working with people with disabilities for the second half. And, um, oh, cool. yeah. And, and, um, and that was really exciting for me because, um, uh, to see, it is really exciting to see you guys that I know from the bands, like doing such great academic stuff and, and like giving back. Cause like, um, 
you guys always were such a positive um, force in, in, in our hardcore scene uh, when when you weren't uh, stealing um, uh, parking meters. Uh, <laughs> were you there for that? Yeah, yeah. I put Rob on that was, show. <laughs> Rob was not involved in that. <laughs> so. um, yeah, well, you know, somebody was. And, yeah, uh, I don't know who was. But, uh, <laughs> on that note, um, uh, have a great day. And um, thanks for being on the show.